0: Welcome to another episode of Asian Globe, a podcast centered around sharing stories that help Asian Americans explore themes around identity and connection to their most authentic selves. I'm Jackie and I'm joined with my co-hosts April and Jojo. Today we have on Elise to discuss how scarcity mindset can play a role in our cultural upbringing, how it can interconnect with many other aspects of our lives, like money and body image and healthier ways to build a relationship with oneself moving forward. So Elise, would you like to talk a little
1: more about your background and how it led you to where you are now? Yes. Hello, everyone. I am Elise, and I am a dietitian here in the Bay Area, intuitive eating dietitian to be specific. And fast forward, I wasn't a very confident kid, and I kind of took that out on food because that was the one thing I could control. And after my own colorful relationship with food, um, I became a dietitian. And here we are, fast forward. I'm now, you know, just someone that explores people's relationship with food. But more and more, I'm noticing that how we grew up, the way that we interact with food, the way that we interact with money, all of that is all tied together. And one of those things that comes up a lot with immigrants and me in
2: particular is scarcity mindset with food and money, both of them. Thank you so much for giving the quick intro of yourself So the first question we have for you is how does being API or first gen affect one's mindset around food and money and I know you mentioned Star City mindset but could you dive in a little bit deeper mm-hmm. as an
1: adult um, one stark example of this is how I interact with my parents in food so I don't know about you guys, but I shuffle food from one fridge to another when I go home. And my parents are always giving me the food that they've been cooking and any leftovers. This even happens with my boyfriend where whenever on the weekends I go to his place, I'm like carrying bags of groceries from my fridge to his and it's just this food shuffle. And so the way that I think my mindset around food and money are shaped by my upbringing is things weren't abundant. I think we were very good at being frugal and we were very good at doing what we could to maximize food or money. And so I think when I reflect on myself as an adult, my whole profession is like around food. All of my best memories have been around food. And I think in an Asian culture, a lot of emotions and love are conveyed through food. Saying no to something is so hard to me. And I see this in my patients a lot of, you know, growing up with without a lot. It feels more comfortable to eat everything on the plate. And we call it here the clean plate club. It's not being comfortable with letting go of excess. That's kind of the scarcity mindset that I see in myself and I see in my patients.
0: I would love to know at what point as you're growing up and, you know, you said you struggled with food until you realized, hey, this is not the best mindset to be in opening yourself up to an abundance mindset. This is the way to go. What was that first feeling to understand? Like, this is not correct. Maybe I should try something else. And how did you move into that route?
1: Mm. Oh, this is such a good question. I remember I really had to practice this in college because I think everything was so new and all of the snacks I couldn't get as a kid, I could get in college. And so after every meal, I would like get more snacks and have a dessert like three times a day. But I think the turning point was when I realized, okay, my body actually isn't benefiting from this. Like physically, this isn't serving me. And so I was able to put, push the brakes on things when I realized, oh, I actually feel really awful, sluggish, low energy, and my digestion is off when I do this to an extreme. And so checking in with my body, but even being aware of my body signals is one of the first steps. And this always comes up with patient calls too of like, okay, how is this habit of cleaning your plate serving you? from a physical standpoint. And if it's not, what can you do differently? Um, so that was kind of one, one example.
3: What are some body triggers that you tend to listen to or that signal that you need to like slow down or eat
1: more? There's usually a point of diminishing returns, whether it's food or money. So with food, the first few bites of anything is usually the most exciting, the most tasty. And there's a point where maybe it's gotten too salty. Like you can taste the saltiness, you need water or it just feels too sweet, or you just, something about your stomach, it's becoming a little bit uncomfortable where you need to take a break and like sit down. So those are the first signals of diminishing returns. And if you can listen to those more and more, that's usually a good sign. It's very easy for people to know I've had too little because you're still thinking about food, you're thinking about what to eat next. It's also very easy for people to know when they've had too much. Like, okay, I'm uncomfortable. I need to, like, unzip my buttons. And, like, you know that. Somewhere in between, in the middle, like, the just right point is usually where it's the hardest to identify. And so if you can just know your min and max and, like, pause in between, you're probably close.
2: Well, that's really helpful. So it sounds like it's really practiced. You have to keep practicing how little or how much you should eat and figure out like the right middle ground for yourself.
1: Totally. And it's like, I always say the first dozen times, just notice when you're hitting that diminishing returns point, you don't have to stop, but you can just pause for a microsecond. And maybe by the 13th time, you can pause for two seconds. And by the 20th time, you can just take a step back, see how that feels. It's always a process.
2: I think I can totally relate to this because growing up, there definitely was that mindset. But you didn't know what to call it. It was just kind of how things were, right? Like, obviously, we want to be frugal. We want to make sure that we're eating everything that we, you know, worked very hard for and to bring home to the table. But in relations to money management and just money in general, uh, what are your like initial thoughts on that? I would say I'm in the category of scarcity
1: where I'm like a squirrel trying to just like shovel everything away. And to me, whenever it comes to spending money, there are certain things I really I could freely spend on and certain things that I, I will hold on to. Like eating out is actually a good example. My boyfriend and I grew up very differently. So I'm going to pull him into this, this example. He grew up where eating out was the normal going to restaurants was like the just the average day. And to me, eating out was like once a month or once a blue moon. And it wasn't even to a fancy place. It was like to sizzler. Right. And so like, to me, I can't imagine spending hundreds of dollars on a meal. To me, that's a waste. I would much rather cook that. So I try to like hoard all of my money when it comes to like eating out, when he just wants to take me out and go on a fun date or have a new experience. And to me, it's almost like that at the end of the day, the question is, OK, Elise, how is this serving you and this relationship? Like In a way, yes, I'm saving money for the two of us. But I'm also saying no to something that could have been really special and a new memory. So I have to assess that for myself.
2: No, it's so funny. I feel like everyone grows up so differently, but there are a lot of like common threads. Something that my boyfriend complains about that I do is I don't let him use too much of like fancy things. Like if we have a fancy soap or whatever, I'm like, you're using too much. And she was like, why can't I use this nice thing that like we bought to enjoy? And I was just like, because you're wasting it. But that's not really good mindset either because like we bought it to enjoy it. So it's not about saving money. Like you already spent the money. Um, So that's something that I'm trying to work on. And I think it's just so funny because he's always like, look, I'm using a little because I know you're going to get mad if I use too much. And I'm like, "Okay, I'm sorry. I do the same thing, but I actually read this quote
3: that said, why does tomorrow's version of you deserve to have better things than today's version of you? And that's kind of triggered this mentality where I'm like, "Okay, well, if I spent 40 bucks on really nice hand soap I should just use it today too right
1: yeah if you know how they say in any relationship sometimes we deem it to be more positive or more negative or more neutral whether it's your relationship with food or money food itself is a neutral thing it's just we give a lot of power to it in making it feel positive or negative depending on the food that we choose I think that happens with us and money too like we think of money too positively or too negatively, it's hard to see money as a neutral thing, which is what you guys are kind of talking about.
0: When you think about food, it consumes your mind. But it's like, you're right, it is a neutral thing where you don't have to specify this food is good or bad. It is just food. And I think that's the hardest part learning about it. Because I think when we are growing up and society is also telling you like, these junk foods are bad, but also it plays in just society where they're making all this unhealthy food more accessible than it is healthier foods so it's like I want to be healthy I want to eat and feel better but do I want to spend ten dollars on organic oranges or you know ten dollars on like a basket of ramen which obviously is much
1: unhealthier but we're being led towards that at the same time totally and I think Because I'm just wired like this, I think about everything through this lens of logic, emotions, and our physical body giving us signals. The way that I think about any food decision or money decision is, okay, logically, what is best for me, right? Let's use my frontal lobe. Let's think about this. And for food, okay, sure, veggies, fresh air, a walk, all of those are great things. Can we do that 100% of the time? Probably not, or else we would be robots. And then the other bubble is the, like, emotions bubble. Like, how is this going to make me feel? Like, what do I actually, am I excited about it? Am I drained at the thought of it? Like, do I actually want this food or do I not? Using your emotions to guide you. And finally, like, the physical signals of, like, okay, when it comes to my body, do I just have a heavy meal and will this heavy dessert cause me to feel even more sluggish? Okay, let me take that into consideration. Or do I just have a light salad and I'm still hungry and I need this piece of cake to get me through the afternoon? Maybe. I think it, that probably would be a positive thing. So when all three are kind of combined, that helps us make a really informed decision. And you could probably extrapolate that to money decisions too.
3: Back to your point, Jackie, on how like society really affects our food decision and money every, and everything. Do you guys remember on TikTok when sumo oranges were trending? and how we were all spending like seven to 10 bucks on one single sumo orange from Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. I just felt like, it's just funny how specifically food seems to trend a lot on the internet. And that impacts so many people, like hundreds and thousands of people just follow these trends absentmindedly. But I just remember thinking how ridiculous it was spending that much on an orange, but also feeling really happy after eating one because they were actually really good. So I think it's interesting just thinking about like how internet trends also affect what we consume.
1: It's like one of those things with um, trends that when the gap between the trend and what you like is so wide, then it's like, okay, it's not worth it. But if it actually aligns, then it's like, oh, this is fantastic. This reminds me of body image too, of like when the trend of what the perfect body is right now is the same as yours, then fantastic. You've won the jackpot. But when it's really wide, then it's, I'm never going to look like that. And it just feels really dejecting too. (laughs) Totally. I actually just saw a
3: TikTok talking about how body positivity does really well for companies to capitalize on because, you know, they can show like a really wide range of different body sizes. They can capitalize on UGC, user-generated content, because it brings them money and how they really can't capitalize on things based off of body neutrality. So I'd actually love to hear your thoughts on the term body neutrality over body positivity.
1: Yeah, this is such a buzz word right now, and I think for good reason. So I think whenever we're in a place where we don't love our bodies, and like for most people, like body acceptance, body positivity is the harder thing to reach for, versus body neutrality is just not hating your body just seeing it for what it is and accepting, okay, it can it can get me from A to Z. It has these functions. So for a lot of people, body neutrality is within reach a little bit more. And I think if we can get to body neutrality, we've already won because it's just a hop and a skip away to body positivity. So I think it's all part of the journey and wherever you are, whatever feels the most right for you, strive towards that. But you're right. I think when it comes to marketing, you have to have people be able to identify with the person or with the body that they want to market and we can't really account for all bodies there's so many different bodies shapes and sizes so it's just it's easier to pick a lane when it comes to marketing basically
3: what advice do you have for clients or just anyone that you're talking to to get to a more like neutral mindset when it comes to
1: like body image So this is one of those things. We can't be naive. Like the world does treat people in smaller bodies or prettier bodies differently. Like we cannot just shut our eyes to that. So with that, I always say, how can you build your own shield? Like you just got to strengthen your own shield. So whatever comes your way, you're not bothered by it. And one of the things is reminding yourself, almost brainwashing yourself on a daily basis, all that is good about your body, the functions that your body can do. Like if you hate your stomach, like, what does your stomach do for you? It digests food. It literally holds your upper body to your lower body so you can stand and sit upright. You know, there's so many things that you can you can think about from a positive light that you just have to remind yourself every day. And the more that you can remind yourself, the more hopefully it trickles down internally, and then you can move on. Um, but again, it's a daily practice. Just like drinking water, just like breathing, you have to breathe every moment of the day. You have to drink water every day. Um, If this is something that's a sensitive thing for you, you just got to do the hard work. I wish there was a shortcut, um, but that's one way. And the study that actually stands out to me the most is a study on how we present ourselves to the world. So I think it came out of Dartmouth, but the social scientist took uh, a participant and drew a scar on her face, like with whatever device. And so she was told to go out and interact with strangers, with the scar on her face drawn on. And before she was let out to talk to these strangers, the researcher actually erased the scar. But when she went out there, she didn't know that. And when she was having those conversations, the feedback was, oh, this girl was so withdrawn. She wasn't paying attention. She seemed really you know, not focused. And that was all to show the fact that her self-consciousness affected her and her interactions. So the more that you see yourself in a negative light or if you're self-conscious about yourself, the more it's going to come out. So how can you see yourself in a light that actually helps you shine from within? So don't hold yourself back, basically. Don't be the one holding yourself back. Yeah, that's a
3: great takeaway. When it comes to like how our culture comes to play with our body image, I wonder like what advice you have for your clients when they ask you about, like you know, My parents had comments about my body over the holidays or just situations like that. Because, for example, my late grandmother, she used to all she would ever talk about was my body, whether it was positive or negative. She'd always either compliment me or tell me, you know, you need to gain weight, lose weight, whatnot. Um, So how do you, first of all, respond to that when there's just such a stark generational difference?
1: Yeah, this one's really tricky. The lack of... (laughs) just being so unfiltered. When it comes to family members, I guess one thing to ask is where is this coming from? Like what's the intention of them telling me this? The thing about comments, usually the no comments is better than any comments, positive or negative, right? Anytime someone says, oh, you've lost weight and it's, the connotation is that it's positive, it affects us in a way and that may or may not be positive. And on the flip side, of course, it doesn't feel good. So it's hard, to, it's hard to tell people of an older generation how that makes you feel or how that affects you. If you're brave enough to tell your elders, okay, by the way, this makes me feel X, Y, and Z. I would appreciate if you could X, Y, and Z. I mean, that's amazing. But I think just realizing maybe they have nothing else to talk about. Like maybe this is small talk for them and there's no positive or negative. Or maybe there is positive, you know, positive, negative connotations associated with it. How can you let that roll off your back and not affect you? Because you know that you're better than this or like whatever changes in your body doesn't actually affect who you are on the inside. I know that takes a lot of logic. It's not very practical, but when it comes to older generations, and this is something you guys might find interesting. I remember hearing about this study about countries that are more so lower middle income countries versus higher income countries. In the low slash middle income countries where the GDP is less than 20,000 US dollars, being bigger is actually more beautiful because food is scarce. So the more rare thing is to be bigger and have food, right? Versus in countries where the GDP is greater than 20,000 US dollars, being thinner is more beautiful because food is so abundant. The more rare thing is to be thin. So I think our grandparents' generation and even maybe our parents, they've straddled both sides of things. And so there's a lot of dissonance. Like they want you to eat more because food was so scarce at one point, but they also have these like westernized beauty ideals and like higher, you know, SES country ideals too. So it's like, you can't win.
3: I think what you said about identifying the source of the commentary is really interesting because my therapist said the same thing. uh, Because I told her that, It made me feel some type of way when my dad comments on like my eating or just anything like that at family meals. And she said, well, think about where it's coming from. If it's anxiety, then you could try to respond by reassuring him that you're doing okay, you feel okay, and that you're listening to your body. And I actually applied that over the Christmas break and it ended up working out really well because originally I would just respond saying can you stop commenting? And I would be kind of aggressive about it. But when I approached it from the reassuring angle, he stopped. So I think that advice is actually really nice. Adding on to yours, Elise, I would love
0: to know for future generations, how do we neutralize food and money where we can talk about the subject, but it's not
1: biased, good or bad? Yeah, I think I'm going to start with food first because that feels easier to me personally. With food, To neutralize it, it it takes exposure. So whenever you feel some kind of way about eating maybe bad food, whether it's sweets or chips or pizza or whatever, how can you neutralize that food so that you don't feel bad or guilty after? The thing is, if for example, I tell you you have to eat like, I don't know, a cookie every single day after lunch for the next week. By the end of that week, you're probably going to be like, okay, I got the flavor of this cookie. I got it. No big deal. I'm you're probably not going to feel the need to eat two or three because you've had it for a full week. If you can imagine doing that for every single food you feel bad about eating or if you feel out of control around that food, if you do that exposure training with every single food, you're probably going to feel fine. You probably won't overeat or overdo it with that food. And so I think exposure is really important. Giving yourself a safe space for it. uh, I think some people might think that's going to derail everything. I'm going to feel so icky after eating that. But the thing is why we feel some kind of way is usually because we feel out of control around that food. So you're going to solve the issue by exposure in the first place. So that kind of kills two birds with one stone. But the thing about our body is it's more resilient than you think. So a small cookie, a small bite, whatever, is a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. There's plenty of other things you're doing in your day to affect you positively or negatively. And then when it comes to money, this is something that I've been working on a lot recently whether it's with my boyfriend, right? His, his ways of spending money and how it's different from mine, or even having my own private practice, charging clients for my service. Like it feels so weird. It feels so charged for me to charge clients. And I wish I knew the answer, but I think exposure too of like, okay, clients clearly want to come and see me. They are happy to exchange the service with a monetary value and they're getting something out of it. So the fact that I'm being exposed to clients gaining value from food and body counseling, like that to me helps me neutralize money. It's not this like overwhelming thing. Like I'm not just like mongering money for myself. There's something of an exchange. There's a positive thing behind it. It's not good or bad. That's what's helping me. So it's a work in progress for me too.
0: No, thank you for that. Cause I think as we grow up, it's so embedded that it's just natural for us, but especially with our kids and to make sure that everything is at a baseline where you're not seeing anything at a bias level
1: helps a lot. Totally. Oh, and this is such a good, this is such a good frame, Jacqueline. It's like, if we were to have kids, like what would our kids think of us and the way that we interact with food or money? Like, for example, the, my boyfriend restaurant example, like, what if my kid sees me saying no to every time my boyfriend or my, my future, whatever partner wants to take me out on a meal? And I'm like, no, honey, let's just eat at home. No, I'll cook. I'll clean. Let's save money. What message does that send to our future kids? And I feel like I've been trying to think about the answer to that just sends the message that mommy values money more than her time. Mommy values like, I don't know, like she just doesn't feel like a dinner out is worth it. She doesn't like new experiences. Like she doesn't feel special enough to say yes. So I think thinking of it that light might also be helpful for certain people. Yeah, it's helping me actually as we talk through this. I like
3: how you're thinking about stopping like generational restrictions for your future children already. I think that's a great way to think about it because like just thinking about how our families have shaped how we view all these things, food, money, our bodies. I think that's a great way to just think in the future tense, like maybe if we don't even want kids, it's like how we're affecting future generations as a whole. I think that's actually a really positive way to look at things.
2: Yeah. And I know earlier we were talking about good food versus bad food. Is the way you define bad food just food that you feel like you don't have control over?
1: I think everyone has their own kind of nuanced definition of it. And the thing is, I think there's a time and place for every single food. And I'm going to give you a very specific example. Someone who's had, let's say, salad every single day of the week. And on the fifth day, all their body wants is like a slice of pizza or a steak or pasta. In that example, I think the pasta or the pizza or whatever you think is bad that you wouldn't normally have, is absolutely the right choice for your body because your body is like craving it. Versus let's say you've had steak and pizza every day of the week and all your body wants is a salad. The salad is the right choice. So like the way the reason why I'm mentioning this is I think all of us have these weird rules in our heads and they really don't matter. It just depends on the context of the day. Like what has been happening that day and what your body needs.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I was just thinking about it in the sense of I don't know if you've ever heard of the term, like, yeet hay. So, like, in Chinese culture, it's, like, food is either hot or cold. And it doesn't literally mean, like, temperature-wise. It's, like, the content of the food. So, for example, like, citruses and, like, fried food are typically hot while, I don't know, like, melon or whatever else is, like, cold. And the idea is that you're supposed to constantly have a good balance of the two. But even though we typically think of things that if we call them yeet hay. That means it's like bad. I don't know. Have you heard of this before? <laughs>
1: I've briefly, yeah, heard of it. My own parents would say similar things, and I never understood it. I wish I knew more behind it. I mean, certain foods if I eat too much of, like maybe it'll affect me. But from a Western standpoint, um, if you think about poison is in the dose, so even with something good like water. If you drink too much of it, if I told you to drink six gallons of water right now, we would all be unalive. Like that's too much for our body to handle. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. same thing with foods that might be too hot or if you eat too much of cold foods or whatever it may be. If you have too much of it, there's a tipping point where your body can handle it versus not. And for every food, that might be different for you. Maybe some people can handle a lot of hot Mm -hmm. foods and their threshold is higher. And maybe some people, their threshold is lower. So I do feel like it's very individualistic. (laughs)
0: The last thing I would love to touch on is I remember we did mention intuitive eating a little while back. I'd love to know what are some really good first steps to start intuitive eating and feeling a lot healthier about food.
1: I think for some of us who think about food more than others, we probably experimented with periods of extremes, right? Extreme levels of restriction or dieting or trying different things. So same thing with your hunger and fullness. You've kind of confused it a little bit by living on the extremes for too long, whether it's too much or too little, and you haven't let it recalibrate to center into this like calm, comfortable range. So I would say the first thing is give yourself time. You know, think about how long you've tinkered with food or think about how long you've not honored your own internal signals. As kids, it was very easy. We would you know, stop playing when we were hungry, eat food, and then go back to playing. But as an adult, you've probably had months or years of like rejecting those signals because you were trying something new or trying a new way of eating. So, however long that took you, give yourself that same amount of time to recalibrate back. And when it comes to recalibrating back, it's not gonna be perfect. You're still gonna have days where things feel confusing, you know, where it's like, is this a craving? Is this physical hunger? Like, what is this? So, as long as you kind of check in and just notice the patterns and Hopefully the pendulum swing over time is less extreme and is more in the middle. You know, you're on the right track. Or if you're feeling like if you're feeling like you're more uh, more in the middle, like less super hungry, less super full all the time, you're on the right track. But the first step, I think, would be to notice your hunger and fullness signals. There's a there's great charts out there of your hunger and fullness patterns. And also, if you feel like emotions, Are getting in the way whether it's stress or overwhelm or loneliness or if you feel like anxiety is causing you to eat or cravings you feel like you're addicted to sugar that's probably something we need to talk more about you probably just need more coping tools you don't have a problem you're not addicted you don't have a dependency you just don't know what your emotions are telling you because all emotions are are signals they're telling you what you should do to feel a little bit better and you all of the answers that you're giving it is food related so how can you diversify your answers and give your emotions like more tools so i would say the book intuitive eating is a great place to be um, going through that hunger and fullness chart just google online and i'm gonna release a quiz soon um, on my website is intuitive eating right for you so hopefully it'll be out by the time this podcast is released and then you can get a better sense of like is this the right thing but you know intuitive eating is right for you if you just want to feel less consumed about food. You want to feel like you can trust yourself around food and you can trust what your body needs and you can confidently give it all foods without guilt. So that's what you can hope to get out of intuitive eating. But the caveat is your body may fluctuate. It might gain, it might lose, and it might stay the same with intuitive eating. The whole focus of intuitive eating is preserving and recovering your relationship with food. And whatever your body does is a side effect. I love how intuitive
0: eating really goes into self-love and what does my body want right now? I will eat whatever I want and just neutralizing food where whatever makes me feel good, I'm okay to have that. Because I know on the other end, when you think about food so much to the point where intuitive eating just sounds so you feel very restricted. You're like, there's no way I can intuitive eat when my body signals are telling me that I'm always hungry or I'm never hungry. But I'm really glad that you're bringing light to intuitive eating because it really, there's a bigger point to it of just self-love and making sure that you're feeding your body what you want and not what anyone else is saying.
1: Yes. It's setting your own internal compass and trusting it. And that's the most important thing. And to give your listeners some reference, you know, I've had, I struggled with food from, I think high school first year up until end of like undergrad before grad school. And even into grad school, it was like a good seven years. I would say firmly last year was the first year where I could eat lunch at two and not be stressed, or I could eat out of my eating window, or I could eat a piece of a brownie that my boyfriend cooked. And like, I wouldn't feel like in a frazzle, like I could eat all foods and I was fine and didn't matter the timing I could travel and eat foods and I would still feel fine it took me I don't know seven eight years too so it really it takes time so don't think if you just know the principles logically that overnight you're it's going to sink in it's going to be like a practice and a process so patience and being gentle is key
3: I'm curious, what really got you to overcome just those seven years in general? Because I noticed your podcast covers so many different topics around like how to stop calorie counting and such. So what advice do you have for that?
1: I would say the more that I've done my own work, it's like the food was the tip of the iceberg. You know, I had periods of under eating. I had periods of binging. Like I was all over the pendulum. I was all over the spectrum and that consumed me for years until i went to get therapy and i realized that all of that was a control mechanism it was a control mechanism for a childhood i had very little control over whether it was being like a minority or not feeling cool enough or good enough or feeling different or being immigrants like all of that i was using food as the outlet and as i started to piece together what was really underneath then i could let go of the food more and you know over the years of doing my own work now my work is on self-esteem and like what that is who am i like what do i value like who do i want to be as a person i feel like i'm at that level now but i think every step of the way you'll uncover something like my first phase was oh i'm clearly starving myself throughout the day let me just eat more or like let me try to restructure my meals that took years of tinkering or like i've cut out gluten dairy and sugar for years at a time How can I, like, maybe it's time I reintroduce one of those things and try to feel better about it? Because will I never be able to eat my mom's buns for the rest of my life? Like, no, I want to eat those buns. Like, how can I eat them without going crazy and crying over it? Every year I was, like, in a way, naturally challenging myself with a new way of doing things. And all that to say, it's just helped me come full circle. Like, I think we're all just trying to come full circle and, like, get back to where we were, you know, as children and how innocent we were with food. So it just took time.
3: I love how you keep referencing that there's no one right way for anyone. There's just your right way and it takes time to get there. So thank you for that.
1: Of course. There's no right way. Yeah. Thanks for reiterating. Well, I think it's been so fun. I love kind of bridging the intersection between being Asian American, also just like how we think our mindset and of course my field, which is food there's so much overlap and it's just like the more that I've grown, the more I've seen how it always comes together somehow. And the way we handle one thing is how we handle a lot of other things. So the mindset is really kind of where it all begins. And if we can start shifting our mindset, we can shift anything.
3: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We are so thankful for your time, Elise. Stay tuned for our own episode on elise's podcast as well elise
1: if you want to plug your own podcast and where people can find you so i have my own podcast called craving food freedom and i'll have these girls on with me soon so we'll be talking all about food and body image and you know i also talk about money mindset and things related to being an american so i tried to bridge all of these topics. And if you would like to be the most carefree version of yourself with food, I encourage you to um, look into private coaching with me or whoever else you connect with. And you know, in the new year, hopefully, we can get you there faster as a shortcut. Awesome! Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you girl. Thank you so it much. Was so fun.